Ladies and gentlemen, February 14th, 2024. I am Matt Polinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and nothing says February 14th, Valentine's Day, like a discussion about urban warfare. That's what we're going to have this week. I know I've been a little quiet on my own podcast content so far in 2024, but we will change all that, and I'll make it up to you this week. A fascinating discussion with a gentleman named John Spencer. He is, if not the leading expert on urban warfare in the world, he's on the short list. He heads the War Institute, leading in studies of urban warfare at West Point Academy, um, and I Obviously, urban warfare is something that has unfortunately become very relevant to the world and a lot of topics that we like to discuss over the past couple years, first with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and now with the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so a lot of people like to talk out of their ass. They like to sit there in the peanut gallery and lob accusations or come up with hot takes about what, how a military should conduct this operation and that operation. What are the acceptable uh, uh, casualties? What is proportional? How, how do you conduct a proportional war? Um, all these things that people who don't know a goddamn thing like to sit there and speculate about. This guy actually knows what he's talking about. He doesn't know just what he's talking about in terms of this conflict. He knows the historical analogs, what is comparable, what is not comparable, what are the distinctive qualities of this campaign in this conflict versus the other ones that are referenced as to prove or support one narrative or one point. This guy is actually an expert on these things. So instead of sitting there and talking out of your ass or for the people, I'm sure my followers, my listeners usually don't talk out of their ass. They usually like to be informed. So to the many people that are friends of yours or might be critics of yours or might be former friends of yours who like to chime in about this conflict, about what might be the uh, uh, come up with these hot takes that might believe that they have some insight on the mechanics or morality of urban warfare instead of having them allowing them to sit there and lob these accusations and just comment from the peanut gallery. You can direct them towards this podcast to listen to somebody who actually she knows what he's talking about. That would be John Spencer. I'm speaking with him in just a minute. It's fascinating discussion. I hope you guys enjoy it. The art of war is a reality whether we like it or not. However, somewhat of a lost art is the recent era since roughly the end of the Cold War has been relatively peaceful. That era of relative peace has seemingly come to an end with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and now the Israel-Palestine conflict raging simultaneously. Today I'm joined by an expert in both the art and science of warfare. His name is John Spencer. He's Chief of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, John, beyond your current position, you've had an extensive career both militarily and in military studies. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your experiences and background. Sure. So I served 25 years on active duty service that included two combat tours to Iraq, both as a platoon leader and a company commander. And then towards the end of my career, I kind of transitioned to kind of academics. I, I, I served as an advisor for the four-star general of the Army in like a think tank. And then I moved to West Point where I was teaching strategy and tactics and started a research center which is the center I now work for called the Modern War Institute, where I travel the world, study um, ongoing conflicts and wars and battles. And I've focused on just urban warfare, which is a very uh, special type of warfare for the last decade plus um, academically. Interesting. And so I think in, in kind of specifying and focusing on urban warfare, I think it's helpful to people who might be novices to contrast that with what is not urban warfare, right? Because we look at it and a lot of the, the reason for the particularly emotionally charged response to Israel's current uh, uh, operation in Gaza has been the nature of it being an urban urban campaign and an urban theater with civilians right alongside soldiers fighting. So, you know, how do we contrast that against what would be a more traditional mano a mano fighting force versus fighting force war theater? Right. And then a lot of people have like a cognitive dissonance of, of urban warfare, what that right. actually looks like. They think about massive formations clashing in the open plains or the folded gap um, or these massive militaries of World War II that no army in the world has anymore. 
clashing and that's the objective is to destroy the other enemy and his fighting force where for many reasons from urbanization and population growth to uh, weaker forces and the growth of technology the decisive battles the battles that decide wars in any war like the ukraine russia war will be urban and then a lot of like you said we see a lot of non-state conflicts going on we're not state actors whether they're terrorists or just insurgents um, whatever they achieve a certain level of military power when they go into the urban area and embed themselves into it whether they're trying to do a counterinsurgency or actually um, defend terrain and that's what we're seeing in places like gaza and others and why why i decided to focus on it because naturally most people don't want to fight urban warfare. Matter of fact, militaries write it into their doctrines, avoid and bypass, like don't do it for many reasons. So not only do people have a vision of war that's different than the reality of today, they also continue to want to avoid it at all costs, which mm-hmm. they should, but it is the present, like the recent present, like the last 20 years and the future of warfare. Yeah, and particularly with the Israel-Palestine conflict in that the instigator of the conflict specifically uh, uh, directed this battle to civilian and urban theaters, right? This was not discretionary on Israel's choice, like, for instance, uh, Adolf Hitler deciding to stop bombing the British, uh, the the Royal uh, Air Force's uh, airfields and deciding to go after London. That's a discretionary choice to go after civilians. This was a, a discretionary, deliberate choice on the part of the instigator that is now being attacked in urban areas, which makes it, I, I imagine, fairly unique. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of uniqueness. Um, both the act that started the war on October 7th was targeted at 80, 90 percent only civilians to include villages that I visited last month. A very unique like killing fields, uh, slaughter. But also so that's uniqueness, of course, in the start of the war, but also in the uniqueness that they built their entire military world, uh, their infrastructure, everything underneath their own civilians on with the sole intent to use those restraints on the use of force and the laws of war against what they knew would be a counterattack to their start of the war. So it's unique to really warfare that that's the strategy of the combatant. It isn't to hold terrain. It isn't to defeat the other military. It's literally to embed underneath the urban areas in the civilians and hope that the world stops the self-defender. So this is very important because the case, the, the the assertion by the Israelis, their main defense or our main justification for their actions here has been that Hamas is using their citizens as human shields. You believe that to be a correct assertion? That isn't the main reason, but that's that is that is a fact. Hamas is when I teach it's a fact, correct? Fact that Hamas mm-hmm. uses human shields and human sacrifice, which is unique to war as well. They literally state, and you got to listen to them when they talk, that they want as many of their civilians to die. They want zero civilians in their own protective tunnels, which they could fit all of their entire population could fit into their tunnels. And they want none mm-hmm. of that. Stuff. Those are facts. Interesting. And that I think that's really core to analyzing this entire situation, because beyond that, you know, the, the moral paradigm really turns on that question. And some so many people seemingly don't seem to believe the Israelis when they say, listen, they're literally hiding behind their civilians. The only thing we can do other than going after the areas where civilians live is simply not fight this war. Correct. That's the only alternative that anybody could ever come up with, because actually, in reality, the facts are that Israel has used every tool, technique, procedure to prevent civilian harm, to get civilians out of the combat areas. And they still get criticized for one indiscriminately targeting civilians or targeting civilians directly, which neither of those are true. Absolutely false. Correct. 
Correct. Absolutely false. So let's go into some of the tactics and methods that they've used to uh, uh, to perpetuate a more just or more moral war and to try to avoid civilian casualties. You mentioned some of your some of your work, uh, precision guided munitions, PGMs, uh, SDM, small diameter bombs um, and other target identification techniques. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I'd start with the the number one thing that is pretty much been developed in recent times as the as the standard for when you are even if you're in a defensive war in de, in in defending your nation if you're tacking into an urban area you give warning right which is not actually you which is unique right the u.s military didn't do that when they invaded iraq afghanistan many battles russia didn't do that into ukraine where you give the entire civilian population warning that you're coming to include the enemy, so it's a, it's a great military disadvantage, and you give them time to evacuate the area, which will be the combat area. So Israel has made warfare, made this campaign more difficult on themselves, put their own soldiers at risk in order to be more protective of civilians. Is that correct? Act. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's the first step is you surround the urban area, you try to isolate it, and then you let you wait for weeks is what Israel did, three to four weeks. and. The main combat area, which they chose the north to be the start because that was the main defensive zone of the enemy and all the disadvantage of that. Then on top of that, they call it they drop flyers, which we all do. U.S. military did that in like the Battle of Fallujah. They did mm -hmm. it in the Battle of Mosul in 2016 to 17. It's kind of a standard practice now as well as to not only do you wait, but you signal and you tell and you alert the civilians and, and unfortunately the enemy. Look, we're coming. Get out. Uh, and then what Israel does as well in order to facilitate that evacuation, which no military has done in the history of warfare, is call people. Literally has all the phone numbers, thousands and thousands, and have real soldiers on phones going, hey, um, religious leader, community leader, store owner, please evacuate. This is a combat area. And then they have text messages. They have social media. And then they have robot calls, like 2 million robot calls where they receive a message like, look, there's about to be a combat area. You need to evacuate. And here's the route to take. And here's the area to take. So those are pretty much uniqueness to only this war. So, and they need to be recognized as what I'm kind of concerned is in the future of wars, how that will be replicated because Israel has that unique capability to do those telephone calls and no military has before. And then lastly, in order to evacuate, they handed out their maps. They handed out their war maps to allow... Crazy. No no, no army in the history of warfare has done that, correct? Never. That's a fact. And I can say that for a fact. No military has ever handed out their urban warfare maps, their graphics on how you control your forces against the enemy. They gave that out to all the civilians and the enemy said, look, today we're only going to be in this little area that you can see on our map, Zone 20. Just stay out of that area. So what does the enemy do? It stays out of that area and moves around. Yeah. And so even with all that, Israel, and, and, and listen, I can only sit here on the sidelines and try to synthesize and digest the, the sources that I see and judge them on their credibility. It seems like they've had a very successful military campaign. In spite of this, um, your your commentary seems to agree with that. You said that Israel has been told every step of the way it could, couldn't do everything it has done. It's amazing what they've done uh, involved in host, hostage rescue and you know the military uh, the military campaigns and, and its effectiveness thus far. So how ha what have they accomplished? How have they done it um and you know what have been the tactics that have been effective sure and we can go back to talk about the small diameter munitions and the and the targeting protocols and things like that if you wanted to but um you know something why don't we talk we talk about that for a moment and then you know we'll just go segment <laughs> sure. by segment 
Fantastic. Sure. So um, there are also standard practices now in, in civilian harm mitigation or things that militaries do, even when they have a valid target um, to prevent civilian harm. Things like monitoring the site, using satellites. Uh, again, and unique to Israel, Israel will actually use satellites to determine where the cell phones are. So what civilians are in the area to help inform, yes, that's a valid military target. And I'm going to use this type of munition. And there's a myth that you can only use precision guided munition that there's a certain dumb bombs are inaccurate, which is the inference is that a dumb bomb can't be as accurate as a precision guided munition. While that's true, the precision, the, the probability of error is like, you know, five meters to 50 meters, like an artillery round is 50 meters. You shoot it, it's going to hit within 50 meters of what you're aiming at. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the determination of whether they're actually trying to prevent civilian harm is the decisions that they have before they fire the round and then how accurate will the round be. And then they've been using, because there are 400 plus miles of tunnels, again, unique. In Vietnam War, there was only like 100 and some. And in the entire country of Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And to include like the the, the famous uh, battles of the tunnels of Kuchi, which you, if you took all the tunnels, you would not even get to one fraction, one fourth of what's in the small areas of Gaza. And, Unbelievable. And the billions of dollars that Hamas used to do that. The Vietnamese didn't have that. I mean, this, these are like insane military grade, deep buried sites in some areas that go hundreds of meters that no round could get, which leads you to the choice of munition. And does the choice of your munition, are you trying to preserve civilian casualties and, and wide area effects and things like that? Which is, so do you, based on the target, let's say you're firing at a bunker that's 100 meters or a tunnel, which we know there are 400 of miles of them, you might use, let's say, a 500-pound bomb or a 2,000-pound bomb, where in another war, there wouldn't be that many uses of those because there's not hundreds of miles of tunnels. So there. So on the, what has the IDF accomplished in this war that started on October 7th, um, and then Israel mobilized, gave weeks, and then started what I thought would take months? So in the in the 2017 Battle of Mosul, there were only 3,000 to 5,000. The IDF were facing 30,000 Hamas fighters, 30 battalions, give or take. Uh, so the scale of what the IDF have been facing is also unique to the modern era. Even if you go back to past battles or like the invasion and where forces were. So in that 2017 battle, we were only facing 3,000 to 5,000 ISIS fighters, and the Iraqi security forces used 100,000 security forces, and it took them nine months to clear a single city. And, and the IDF had been fighting in seven major cities, so seven Mosul's, Raqqa's, Aleppo's. And they, were, they cleared them within two months in Gaza City, in, in, in Bet Nanyun, Khan Yunus. They have cleared urban terrain of Hamas military capability at a at a pace that is very what I would not, as an ex expert in urban warfare, thought was ever possible. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Wow. 
And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. That's incredible. And could, maybe you could tell us about some of the tactics that they use because we're sitting here on the sidelines. How does one clear an urban area? You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously the bunker busting bombs. There was a tactic that you mentioned in, in another interview I saw called the bite and hold. Would love, would love to get into the nitty gritty here. Sure. So, the, so we teach, um, I teach division level tactics on this. This is a very common tactic, actually, the, the city attack. How do you attack a city either to cognitively take it or to physically take it? Uh, if your objective is to just to, to take it cognitive, like we drove into Baghdad and did circles around Baghdad in 2003, we cognitively had defeated the enemy and there wasn't a major fight. Uh, if the enemy is going to embed themselves, then you have to think of other ways to do it, like the encircle them and then try to convince them to leave or encircle them and then do a deep penetration into the center of the tent, the, like we did in the second battle of Fallujah. We actually just penetrated all the way to the middle, turned around and said, come get us. Now, that's another tactic. Interesting what the IDF did, especially in Gaza City, was to go around all the main defenses and they attacked in a pincer movement along the coast to secure the main hospital first to protect it and then worked to break down the enemy from the direction that the enemy didn't want you to come from. And one of the things that's unique to, and I've been studying the IDF for years because they're very unique in their approach to contested urban warfare. So they lead with things like the bulldozer that we don't have. Like the U.S. military doesn't have a bulldozer that's three stories tall that you can use remote control. Wow. Um, and, and it can take the first rounds of a defender who is impossible to see. Um, and then you follow that with a, maybe a tank, which has an active protection system, which will take the RPG rounds that are usually hidden in the environment. Like in the second battle of Fallujah, the U.S. military lost six tanks in the first few hours because you can hide and then pop up and do volley fire RPGs Again, the IDF have learned their lessons so they can basically create this siege busting engine then to methodically work through. But you can also have a week long battle on the surface of a, like a city block and not be doing anything to the Hamas because it is a, a, a battle for the tunnels, unlike other urban battles. Like that's not what that wasn't in Fallujah. It wasn't in Mosul where you have that network of tunnels underneath and the enemy doesn't care what you take on the surface. He's fighting from within his tunnels. So that as you do this clearing, um, whether you do you know, what we call the hammer and the anvil, you have one force coming against the other force and, and pressuring the enemy into this. It basically runs into the, the anvil and you eliminate him that way. Or you can do this bite and hold technique, which is what the IDF did in Khan Yunus as they were working through the densely populated areas and where there was still civilians left, where you just bite off a piece of the urban area, clear it, and then slowly bite off another piece. And then basically like an ink block, work your way through it. Um, it's, it's, it's actually harder to do that, but it's also uh, a methodical way to do it as well. And that would seem to be the type of, of methodology that would lead to a nine-month outcome that they've somehow done in two to you know two to four months, which seems to have impressed you quite a bit. I, I, how, how do you so the, it, literally trying to go after the tunnel? The soldiers are on the ground, tunnels underneath the ground. They don't know what's going on underneath their feet. Booby traps, eight thousand soldiers with God knows what weapons. How do you go about entering those tunnels, clearing them, and taking hold of them? Carefully. I mean, that's the only yeah. way. I can situationally um they found over 2000 tunnel entrances i mean it's basically 
they're everywhere. So how do you do that? And then once you see one, how do you deal with that specific tunnel? How do you know what's in it? And oh, by the way, the other historic things that are here that no military on the planet has faced is something like the 12,000 rockets that Hamas has launched since October 7th. Literally, you're fighting that battle that you're talking about, which is called combat in hell. Your snipers, things underneath your feet, and there are rockets coming from within the combat area going over your head, headed toward your house that you can see behind you. You can actually see in Gaza, if you've been there, you can see Israel right behind you. That's unique, the proximity and those rockets. And then the other variable of civilian hostages, which determine what you do about the tunnels, right? Because you're not, you can't just blow up all the tunnels, which is a way to neutralize a tunnel as you're moving forward. Yeah, if you want to go fishing with dynamite, you theoretically could, and you're going to get a lot of terrorists, but like, hey, we don't want to kill all the hostages simultaneously. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's really what we did in Vietnam. We would drop two grenades in the tunnel hole, or we'd pump tear gas into it. And there are not a lot of solutions. The the last solution is to drop people into it. We dropped, you know, two guys called tunnel rats into the tunnels. Israel uniquely has an entire brigade um, soldiers, special forces soldiers trained only for the tunnels. They're called Yahalom or the weasels. Mm-hmm. And they have wow. robots, dogs, uh, flying drones that can work underground, which is very hard to do. I mean, it, it would be if you're trying to defend in a, in a tunnel, a nightmare it is to see them coming. The counter question, why is Hamas so bad at this? Why do they think they could get away with this? What were they thinking? So I think that um, one, their strategy, if you talk about military studies, if you teach this, a strategy was very clear. They wrote it down. Our strategy is to destroy Israel and to kill every uh, Jew in in Israel. Now, the strategy of this war, right, they conducted October 7th, expected a response. And they also respected, because there's history, to an Arab uprising. They wanted Mm. Hezbollah in the north to come in. They wanted uh, all the Shia militias to come in. They wanted other nations to come in in their defense. And that, and that failed. Didn't happen. Nope. Yep. Hezbollah said you're on your own, which was their main main thing that they thought. So that was their overall kind of political strategy. And then the strategy in the war, which was, you have to argue at times was working, which again, they're not trying to kill the idea. They're not trying to hold the ground in Gaza. Their whole point was to get as many civilians killed and then hope for the world to step in, which is also unique to Israel. If you look back at the Yom Kippur War, the Six Day War, where the international community goes, look, I know you were attacked. You were attacked by five nations. I know, but we need you to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Every, that, that seems to be, a you know, not just now, but throughout the ages, a unique feature and aspect of just this conflict that Israel can continue to get attacked and then be told to pull their punches by the rest of the world, which is something, you know, a lot of people that don't have historical context that don't know. And, and this is very, you know, as, as a historian, I'm sure you have your, your thoughts on this, uh, but um, pretty much anyone under the age of 35 to 37 didn't really uh, live in much of a world where Israel was the David and not the Goliath. They've mostly lived in the world where Israel was considered the Goliath to the Palestinian refugees supposedly david um but that flipped very that that flipped over time another incredibly unique aspect of this conflict and that israel was once going against you know the the standing armies of sovereign nations and that now that that threat gets neutralized the threat now is that uh, uh, of the international pressure and falling on the wrong side of the ethical and moral paradigm in fighting a, a guerrilla force that it seemingly has to take some responsibility for that's right. I mean, all war is a contest of will, no matter what. It's not about, yes, it is about fighting. It is about killing. It is about taking terrain, but it's about will. Will the military, will the politicians, and then the will of the domestic and international community. 
Uh, and history shows that if you lose that will, you will lose the war. And the U.S. military have lost battles because we lost the will. It certainly uh, seems like it. Uh, one gentleman, I know that you well, I know that you visited Israel last month, as you mentioned. Would love to hear what your experiences were. And did you get any FaceTime with uh, IDF Commander Yoav Gallant? He's been a, a topic of interest to me uh, since he you know came into my consciousness when this b- battle began. I have not, but I, I, I'm I'm very impressed. Of course, I'm impressed by the entire operation, despite all the rhetoric of the the uninformed. Uh, I have not. I'm headed back at the end of the month, so we'll see. I had an amazing experience and learned things that I had no clue about, uh, despite studying this for decades. And this is why it's really hard to see all the experts of the world. One, they're they're not experts in urban warfare. They're definitely yeah. not experts in this war. And they never, even if they've never been to Israel or Gaza, they're definitely not the experts. Yeah. Yeah. And so in putting that in historical context, you know, your most recent piece for Newsweek uh, was called, you know, memo to the experts, quote unquote, stop comparing Israel's war in Gaza to anything. It has no precedent. Um, you get lists, lists some examples such such as the ones that you've listed thus far, you know, and the, the battles that you experienced firsthand, Mosul and Fallujah in the Iraq campaign. But also historically, um, you know, some people when we do think back to World War Two, apparently, and I didn't know this before I read your piece, the Battle of Manila was the most uh, uh, prominent urban warfare in World War II, I guess, uh, seemingly before, you know, the European campaigns that ended the war when Germany was all already on the run. Um, Maripol in, in Russia in 2022, maybe, Ukraine. uh, Ukraine. Yeah. it's Ukraine. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Apologies there. That's right. It's, it's, but it's, it's, it's currently Russians are sitting on it, but it's Ukrainian it, it, sovereign land. We'll, we'll, we'll respect, uh, you know, until this one, the, the bat, until the treaty is signed, we'll respect that. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of those campaigns historically that you contrasted with this current campaign. In writing that piece sure so you know everybody wants i i understand humans want kind of constructs to hang their ideals on or their their opinions or their emotions but um one the historical examples that most people are trying to use the battle of Mosul, which i talked to you about in the in the campaigns against isis are the wrong context to be using against this war involving multiple massive urban battles with an, an enemy defender of this scale in tunnels with hostages and with rockets there is no historical presence and oh by the way using a military who follows the laws of war even when the defender doesn't so this kind of rules out like why don't we talk about syrian war right where al-shad al-assad has killed over three hundred thousand in a matter of 10 years to include massive urban battles and chemically attacking his own so nobody the outcry was different, but again, uh, they don't follow the laws of war. Well, then we could talk about Russia, who illegally invaded, of course, with the UN Charter, and was told by the ICJ to, to to stop and leave immediately, and then had multiple urban battles, and one of them called the Battle of Mariupol, about a city of about four hundred thousand, where only three to three to four thousand defenders, Ukrainian defenders, mm-hmm. and Russia carpet bombed it. Russia attacked a theater of 600 children and and destroyed it. Uh, Russia attacked a, a maternity hospital with no no military value. It created mass graves, and there actually is no record of how many civilians died in it because Russia still controls it and won't give access to those mass graves. And then I I show the you know, like I talked to you, but I also went back to the Battle of Fallujah, which is also used like oh that's not what the U.S. military did at the Second Battle of Fallujah. Well, let me tell you about the first battle of Fallujah, which is the one where we were stopped six days into it at, because it was perceived to be a lot of civilian casualties. So we waited six months, emptied the city of 95% of its population and still destroyed most of the city. And, and it still took massive amounts of time to search you know, tens of thousands of houses. 
the one example I found historically, like you said, again, I can't go to like the Battle of Berlin. I can't go to the Battle of Stalingrad or even it was well it, uh, it, interesting because berlin it was already chaos right it was already you know the, the right, entire the, nobody mm. followed the walls of war i mean the soviet yeah. union who attacked it stalin didn't care how many people he killed he put up or a how many women yeah had yeah. raped every woman from That's you know right. munich right. to berlin yeah uh, same thing with stalingrad it's just a clash of two militaries not following the laws of war so I, wow. I had to go to the u.s military so in the battle of manila which is the biggest battle to include bigger than stalingrad as in for the size of civilian casualties killed uh douglas macarthur general macarthur said you can't have air power you can't have artillery i don't want to see the city destroyed and he attacked it with like thirty-seven thousand americans with some philippine militaries and there are only seventeen thousand japanese navy like they took their navy and left them behind and said defend the city and it took weeks and a hundred thousand civilian casualties but there are some likenesses in the characteristics. There were lots of sewers and tunnels in Manila. There was a thousand plus U.S. prisoners of war inside the city. And the enemy was not going to be convinced to leave. He was going to defend it to death, and he did. But a hundred thousand civilians died. So, But it's hard to go back to then because you, you have to look at the Geneva Conventions after World War II to include the ones that were put in place to preserve civilian life. So no military of the world has faced what Israel has faced today, not just in the characteristics, but the scale of the defenders who literally want as many civilians to die as possible. It's, it is without precedent historically in any yeah. any, and any I, phase and actually, of history they move it. I did interviews before the war started. I'm like, okay, if the IDF do this, they're going to lose thousands of soldiers and there's going to be lots of civilian deaths. And there, it's going to be very bloody, very long. I mean, I, I thought like months, I mean, literally like, I mean, if Mosul took nine months to clear and it was one city and it had it was backed by almost an unlimited air power of the U.S. military and a coalition. IDF doesn't have an unlimited, no matter what people think, arsenal of precision guided munitions or other uh -huh. munitions. They have limitations. That's right. And I thought they would I thought it would take them many, many months. And I didn't know if they had the time because war is about time. And Hamas wants to drag this out. That's what you know, that's why they, they took the hostages. Right. Sinwar learn from the past in israel's prisons that hostages buy you time gain you political power so his whole strategy was about dragging this out and he couldn't have imagined the speed at the idf clearing of the their defensive zones and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break Interesting. And, you know, I want to pause the question to you about that strategy and then it might have backfired because even in dragging it out, I take a bit of a different, you know, I have a bit of a different view because we're now fighting this war in the social media era. And Sinwar, you know, and that's the, the head of military head of Hamas who used to be held in an Israeli jail, uh, was actually uh, had a life threatening illness and Israel decided to save his life. And he repaid them by being released in exchange for a hostage and decided to launch the October 7th terrorist attack to, to thank them for their troubles. Um, he's old. He doesn't understand how things work in media in the social media age, and he doesn't. He did not account for the short attention spans of the universe in the social media age, and it's something that right now, for better or for worse, and I have my thoughts on the Ukraine, but I'll spare most of them, um, is is not coming to benefit the Ukraine. That over time, a lot of people that were very gung ho about its defense and uh, and its um, uh, moral righteousness and its fight against Russia have kind of lost interest. Similarly, I think a lot of people are already losing interest in the cause of the Palestinians. Not all of them, but do you see? 
150,000 people marching in London every weekend? I don't. Do you see some people marching here and there? There still is some uh, some kind of outrage and energy on the co- behind the cause of the Palestinians. But the type of fiery, you know, occupying cities, uh, civil disobedience energy that you were seeing for a couple weeks in, let's call it November, even into December and January, you don't see that any longer because people kind of burn out in the social media era. And I think Sinwar uh, may have miscalculated in that time. As time goes on, people simply lose interest, move on and are not uh, even uh, don't even focus on his cause and willingness to go to bat for the Palestinians. And I guess the only, the, you know, I guess Joe Biden and the Biden administration have been so somewhat more um, reticent to support everything Israel is doing over time. However, they still haven't really pulled the plug on anything. Right. So a couple things on that. Um, I don't think they've lost interest. It does ebb and flow, especially like the ignorant uh, people marching for Hamas, literally a, a terrorist organization designated by m- lots of countries who did one of the most vile acts since the genocide uh, in history on October 7th. And if th- they need to watch the video and walk the ground and then come back with their ideas. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think Sinwar did land, and especially his Iranian backers, uh, learn from the power of social media to to create that momentum, to include geopolitical momentum. As you see today, there are still uh, world leaders saying that Israel cannot continue the operation, cannot finish Hamas, cannot do an operation to return their hostages, babies, elderly women, Holocaust survivors that are still being held by Hamas. Um, the pressure is there. And at times I was very concerned that that pressure was achieving that momentum to where um, your your strength in war, yes, Israel can act unilaterally, but your strength in war is your alliances. It would have been very challenging had the IDF approached this war differently. So their approach has also been cognizant of that international will and um, basically understanding of the challenges and then the precautions being taken despite the numbers, which I've never seen a war where you take the numbers of the terrorist organization or that a where you can have accurate civilian casualty counts down to a single digit. That's historic as well. Never been done. Yeah. It was My, a year you know, later after the Battle of Mosul, and they still didn't know how many civilians had died. Right. In, in the Iraqi campaign, was there any notion at all of how many civilians had been killed? No. No. None. You could None. Especially not down to like the digit. That's insane. Yeah. Yes, there were the same human rights organizations saying like there's a lot of civilian deaths. There's a humanitarian crisis. All of that. There, it was the same. But never to this level where the entire world uses Hamas's civilian casualty numbers. And the international aid organizations that are seemingly supposed to be neutral and humanitarian, but have turned out to be simply uh, uh, kind of whitewashed and laundered arms of Hamas and, and armed resistance like uh, uh, United Na- the United Nations faction, what is it, UNRWA? I mean, right, every yeah. yeah. Everything's been proven. Everything has been proven that that organization was at least a meaningful portion of that organization was assisting with, with military and violent activities on behalf of Hamas. It's not a theory. It's been proven, correct? That's right. In my opinion, complicit. Like, I mean, wow. you, they found a tunnel, literally the data center for the entire Hamas organization under the UNRWA, United Nations, UNRWA headquarters. That's insane. That's insane, right? So all the same thing with the hospitals, right? Accusations. This hospital is being used as, you know, you people have different definitions of what constitutes a command center, for instance, but it is a plausible explanation. Uh, it is not uh, a bridge too far to claim that what was the activities, what would those this, these hospitals were being used for were command centers with tunnels underneath them that were being used to transport military hardware and soldiers. All these accusations are true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the idea that a hospital is 
sacred ground and which war can never touch. Yes, hospitals uniquely after the Geneva Conditions are protected sites. And, and even the medical staff and the wounded inside them are protected. But once the enemy uses them for military advantage and uses them to create harm to the other force, then they lose their protections. Hamas doesn't care about that. And then, oh, by the way, Israel never bombed a single hospital. In the two in the Battle of Mosul, again, U.S. military dropped bombs on hospitals, which ISIS was, they had massive battles in the two main hospital areas. They flattened one to rubble because ISIS was using it as a major fighting position. So yes, 100%, but Israel has gone above and beyond the requirements to protect not only civilians, but sites like hospitals to include, there's nothing against searching a hospital and telling ISIS, telling, well, ISIS and Hamas almost interchangeable, but Hamas, like, get out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And this is from, if not the leading urban warfare expert in the world, certainly on the short list. Lots of, John, and this is a question, unfortunately, I have to ask for the audience out there. There's a lot of people. Are you Jewish? No. Do you have any association or affiliation with this, the country of nation of Israel other than an appreciation of uh, its warfare capabilities? Not at all. That, that's it. Because, you know, listen, Matt says it. People in my community say it. They say, you know, obviously because of your heritage, you're going to run with this narrative that you're going to find any inference. You're going to ignore the crimes of the IDF, the civilian casualties, and you know your lack of humanity. And and uh, the, you've seen all the arguments that they cart out. Okay, from a purely neutral, as informed as humanly possible source, justifies and validates every narrative in support of Israel and its claims thus far in this this battle, uh, thus far around this battle. Um, and this has been incredible, John, the, the wealth of knowledge that you display. It's just, it's so impressive. And I'm so glad we had a chance to speak um, more to get into a, a little more of a contemporary sub issue um, in terms of hostage, you know, the, there's warfare and then there's hostage release and rescue. Um, the first specifically military hostage rescue that I think has been conducted in this campaign occurred uh, last week with Israel. Uh, Israel freeing two hostages militarily from you know I think the second or third story of a, of a building in Rafah. Uh, I've seen you you know you're you, you're up to speed on that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this operation. Yeah, so it's it's technically the second since on the in the, in the first couple of days they rescued a, an Israeli female IDF soldier in a military operation, but not you know not this complexity. Although that was highly complex, any hostage rescue in a combat area in a war zone is going to be insanely complex and risky. But this one was unique. Uh, clearly, the military pressure and the military activities of the IDF led to actionable intelligence, and then it was literally like an all of nation effort to conduct the operation, not just the the premier uh, counterterrorist organization for Israel called the Yamam, which actually was the the parent of all of all of our the US and others counterterrorism forces that that specifically train hostage rescue and counterterrorist operation. So the Yamam, the Shin Bet, the intelligence services, the IDF, an armor unit, Air Force, helicopters, police, it, all used and synchronized, which is insanely hard to do, and penetrate into a uncleared combat area, uh, identify the target building, and successfully, without harm to the hostages, retrieve them from the second floor with guard, armed guards um, having to breach the door and get them out of there in all of a matter of an hour, which is insane as well, and had them back in Israel and with their in the hospital, getting their hospital checked. Um, it, it will go down as historic as in the complexity wow. and the boldness and the success of that operation. With no casualties, right? No casualties. There were, 
Unbelievable. No, no idea. Israel casualties. No. Incredible. And then I've got people on the other side saying, how dare they conduct this operation? Innocent Palestinians were killed. What moral framework to these people? I mean, who raised them? Oh, anyways, um, as you mentioned. Uh, OK, so in interesting. Actionable intelligence. Yes. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what are the forms of actionable intelligence and how they're gathered in, a, in an operation like this. Sir, so actionable intelligence will be, I mean, you're going to hear a lot of things from people calling in phone centers, satellite images, um, even as you clear an area, you're going to find evidence like they did in Khan Yunus. They found DNA of the hostages being held in damp, moldy, inhumane conditions in cages. They found DNA from the hostages. All of that is intelligence. But when you get to the point of it, actionable intelligence is, and it can be um, signals intelligence, satellite and human intelligence, somebody's reporting what's going on. And it's all collected and you have certain degrees of confidence that it's actionable. You can you could actually have a there is a degree of probability that you will be successful and you can action it as in do the operation. But still, um it's what's amazing is that uh, you know, probably Netanyahu or some other political leader had to assess all the intelligence and the risk that the military says like how how much of a chance can we do this? Can this succeed? And there's always risk, insane risk in a situation like that. And you make a decision based on the intelligence that you've decided is actionable. Let's do it. And we only have a certain window. And like, when do you do it? Of course, you do it when everybody's sleeping. So there's just less chance of civilians out. And then you take all the risk and go, okay. And everybody knows like this is as high risk as it gets. We could all die trying to do this, but it's worth bringing those hostages home and and i'm sure another you know in terms of morale in and another yet another indicator that hamas and whoever is being either one being an apologist for hamas or or two believes uh is kind of a a political you know uh uh it's what's the term that i'm looking for uh a uh, a useful idiot on behalf of hamas and believing that you know a forced ceasefire which is really israel simply stopped fighting is really the best outcome for everybody involved here i mean just another signal that listen the results here are inevitable. The destruction of Hamas, their surrender, and the destruction of you know uh, of the the that whatever the ruling regime was in Gaza um, is inevitable. And all you're doing is delaying it. And you better go cut a deal right now because whatever the deal is going to be cut a few months from now is going to be even worse. Um, and so I think for for morale, it's incredibly valuable as well. Um, in terms of the final, what may very well be the final phase of this operation, um, and a lot of people have their eyes on it right now. Looking at yeah, Rafa, um, over a million civilians are you know many of them not civilians but over a million people have fled from the various other regions in gaza that israel has taken has taken a stranglehold of on uh, many many of them are in rafa and that seems to be where the rest of hamas's leadership and fighting force is um and a lot of people are concerned because that's kitty corner and adjacent to egypt and what happens when israel invades a space of uh, a highly dense space of a million residents um had what what's your perspective on this and how do you foresee it going Sure. One is it will be a, a significantly complex operation, of course, but also words matter. There are not a million people in Rafa City. Okay. Okay. There's not a million people in Rafa refugee camp. There's not a million people probably in the Rafa district because that includes the civilians that actually were told to go not to Rafa, but there are people that live in Rafa and there's, it's highly dense. And there are um, people that are also in Rafa, but there's actually a humanitarian zone called the Al Mawasi humanitarian zone that's not in that Rafa area where the Four battalions are of the 
the last four battalions of Hamas, the last bit of military capability of Hamas, the leadership, and clearly the hostages. I think that hostage rate tells you that it was in Rafa, if we didn't mention it. The hostages, the leadership, the remaining Hamas battalions are in Rafa. And yes, it will be a significantly challenging operation. But based on the recent history of the IDF in like Khan Yunus, it is possible to do it. It is possible to evacuate the civilians out of the main combat areas. Right? You're not going to attack the entire southern portion of Gaza. You're going to methodically, because that's what the IDF have shown how it's possible to do it, whether you bite and hold or you surround, let's say, Rafa refugee camp only. And that's just a term for another urban area because it's you know it's decades old. It's, it's concrete buildings. And then you methodically work down the enemy. That military pressure has shown success in this war. So I have full confidence that, yes, it will be a complex operation and because the civilians will have to be moved either north the already cleared areas or like we showed in con news with the map bite a little piece off clear that area mm -hmm. move the civilians out of that area bite another piece off there are many ways it could be done and oh by the way the the best way to do it is hamas surrender because if hamas surrenders there would be zero civilian casualties all the hostages would come home overnight uh, Occam's razor, the, the most common sense, simplest, and also the most morally righteous outcome is for the instigator of this battle who has not observed the, the rules of war, um, has shown a lack of humanity from start to finish to go ahead and surrender. And there's so many people that for some reason this just never occurs to them. It is wild. Um, John, I, I could go on with you for hours here, and this is incredible. And, you know, I, I think we, we've covered so much ground on this particular conflict, and you've done an amazing job. And, I mean, uh, the history nerd in me wants to go through every, uh, you know, every major urban warfare and battle in the history of warfare with you. But, you know, we'll save that maybe for another time. Um, but, you know, wanted to thank you so much for joining us and for giving us this incredibly, you know, unique and informed perspective on this conflict. Um, I know you've done a ton of amazing scholarship and, and authorship. Tell everybody where they can find you, find your work so they can they can continue to follow you sure so mainly on johnspitzeronline.com you could also go to the modern war institute website where we hang like our case studies for the history nerds where i've written case studies on all the major urban battles that the like the u.s military from way to even suez city uh, a lot of the ones who have the characteristics of what what the world is seeing now and then they forget what happened in the past um, i'm also on the social media of course especially on the x as spencer guard but uh, i'm out there Fantastic. And everybody follow, follow John on uh, X Twitter, whatever you may call it. And, you know, check out his work, whether you're the history, if you're not a history nerd like us, you'll become one soon enough. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, incredible perspective. And uh, hopefully the uh, one of the best case scenarios that you have outlined for the remainder of this conflict does play out. Um, but we will sure to be monitoring it in the meantime. Uh, everybody, thank you to John Spencer. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.